distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. My name is Zerling Liu, President of LSE-SU China Theorem Society. On behalf of our society and LSE Asia Research Center, I would like to welcome you all to the LSE China Development Forum 2014. In the past decade, interest in China has surged along with its growing visibility and influence. It is against such a historical background that our forum came into being. Since its inception in 2009, we have explored various issues surrounding China's ongoing transformation. This year, under the overarching theme of rebalancing China, we would like to discuss China's development in the context of the much-anticipated official reform agenda set out last November. Today, we are honored to have 28 international experts who have deep knowledge of China. With vigor and measured heat, they will discuss and debate some of the most relevant and thought-provoking topics from different angles of rebalancing, between consumption and investment, between privatization and centralization, and more globally, between China and other international players. It is our sincere hope that you will find today's forum interesting and intellectually stimulating. Now, on behalf of our society, I would like to first thank our steering and advisory board, as well as our strategic collaborators, including Confucius Institute for Business London, the 48 Group Club, China Next Foundation, and Aqua City for their comprehensive support and invaluable guidance. Next, I shall thank our premium sponsors, Swile Pacific and Cathay Pacific, our gold sponsor, Bright Fruits Group, and our supporting partners, Rochester PR Group, as well as Mother Bridge of Love. Thirdly, I shall thank KL Communications, a leading Chinese language consultancy in the UK, and I'm Britain, our exclusive video partner, as well as all our media partners. Last but not least, I would like to say a big thank you to our outstanding foreign directors and every committee member from our society for their dedication and hard work in the past six months, which turned this forum from concept into reality. Thank you all. Now, please allow me to introduce to you our first speaker for the keynote session, Professor Eric Maskin. <laughs> Professor Maskin is Adams University Professor at Harvard. He received the 2007 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics for laying the foundation of mechanism design theory. He has also made important contributions to game theory, contract theory, social choice theory, political economy, and other fields of economics. Professor Masking has unique ties with China's economics profession. He supervised several Chinese students at Harvard, and all of them are now leading Chinese economists, including Professor Li Daokui, Professor Chen Yingyi, as well as Professor Li Xu Chenggang. So it is really our special honor to have Professor Masking here today. And by embracing globalization, China has become the factory of the world and successfully lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. 
However, income disparity has also been widening at an alarming rate. So here comes Professor Maskin's topic today. Why haven't global markets reduced income inequality? So without further ado, let's give a warm welcome to Professor Maskin. Well, good morning. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm delighted to be participating in this uh, exciting conference. My topic, uh, as, the, uh, as the title page suggests, is, is a problem not limited to China. Uh, in, in fact, this is a, a worldwide problem, the connection between globalization and increasing inequality, uh, but I do think it has uh, particular relevance for China, uh, and that's why I think this talk belongs in this conference. Let me, let me try to set the scene. I don't have to tell anyone in this room that the last 20 years or so have seen an enormous increase and globalization. <clears throat> and by that, uh, I mean much more trade of goods and services across international boundaries, but also more internationalization in production itself. So the productive processes now cross international boundaries. There are, of course, multiple causes for this uptick in globalization. Uh, we've seen a decline in transport costs. Perhaps even more important, we've seen a decline in communication costs. So it's, it's practically uh, costless now to communicate with someone uh, on the other side of the world. And then there have also been political reasons, uh, removal of trade barriers for uh, the formation of trade associations and the like. Globalization has brought with it many promises. Uh, one of the most important promises is to bring prosperity to the poorer countries of the world. And it, in, that, um, in that promise, there has been considerable success. In fact, uh, we've seen some spectacular successes in China and India. Uh, their growth rates have been astounding, and a lot of this growth is attributable to globalization. But another promise that proponents of globalization have made is to reduce the gap between the haves and the have-nots. In other words, to reduce inequality in poorer countries. And there, it's fair to say that the promise has not been made good on, or at least in most countries, it has not been made good on. We've seen uh, really quite serious increases in inequality in many emerging economies. 
Well, uh, why should this matter? Probably, again, I don't need to spend very much time on why we should be concerned with inequality. There, there are three standard arguments for why increasing inequality should worry us. The first, it, of course, is an egalitarian argument, the idea that uh, people should be treated equally to the extent that we are getting uh, ever greater gaps between rich and poor than before, this, is, this flies in the face of our egalitarian instincts. But e even if you put those aside, there is, of course, a strong connection between eliminating inequality and eliminating poverty. So even if you don't worry too much about the people at the top, you may worry about bringing the people at the very bottom up out of poverty, and that uh, is often achieved by decreases in, uh, in inequality. Uh, and then, even if you reject that argument, you may uh, care about inequality simply because it brings political stability. We, we know that there is a strong correlation between countries with very disperse income distributions and political instability um, for, for security reasons alone, there, there is an argument against inequality. Well, f whatever uh, we might care about it, uh, my, my topic today is uh, why has it happened? And one first question to consider is, should we be surprised uh, that inequality in poor countries has increased th through globalization. Um, and the answer, at least according to perhaps the best established theory of international trade, the theory of comparative advantage, is yes, it is surprising. The theory of comparative advantage is, is an old, it's a 200-year-old and very successful uh, theory for understanding international trade patterns. Uh, and it has worked in explaining those trade patterns in every previous globalization. This is uh, not by any means the first globalization the world has seen. Uh, the, the, the theory of comparative advantage worked very well up until uh, the current one. And so uh, we might well want to ask what's different about the current one. Uh, but it's quite clear that the theory of comparative advantage predicts that free trade should reduce inequality in poor countries. And let me, let me explain why that's so. Uh, the theory of comparative advantage says that the reason that countries trade with one another is that different countries have different relative endowments of the factors of production, the, the things that, the inputs that go into production. So for my purposes, I'm going to focus on labor. Let's imagine that two of the important inputs in, into production are high-skill labor and low-skill labor, uh, and let's compare a rich country with a poor country. The reason why a 
rich country is rich is that it has a higher proportion of high-skilled workers. Countries are only as rich as their people, uh, as, uh, as the human capital of their population. Uh, the ratio of high-skilled to low-skilled workers will be higher in the rich country. And that means that the rich country has a comparative advantage in producing goods that, re that require a high proportion of high-skilled workers. So an example of such a good is uh, computer software. A poor, a poor country where the ratio of high-skill to low-skill workers is much lower will have a comparative advantage in producing goods where skill doesn't matter so much. And often these are agricultural goods, uh, such as rice. So to, to see the effect of globalization on production, I want to do a thought experiment. I want to look at production patterns before globalization occurs, before it's possible for the rich and poor country to trade with one another. And I want to compare that with the pattern of production after globalization occurs. Well, before globalization, companies in the rich country are going to have to produce both software and rice because both these goods are demanded by consumers in the rich country. And the same is true in the poor country. There will be both software production and rice production in the poor country. Uh, but there's a sense in which software production in the poor country is inefficient given the, the constitution of the poor country's labor supply because uh, given the, the high proportion of low-skill workers, according to the theory, the, the, poor, the poor country's labor force is better suited to producing rice. And so there's a sense in which low-skill workers in the poor country are hurt by software production in the poor country. Uh, poor uh, low-skill workers aren't needed very much for software if, if uh, production is being diverted away from rice and towards software, that's going to lower the demand for low-skill labor, put downward pressure on low-skill wages, at the same time as high-skill workers will be very much in demand and see their wages rise. And so before globalization, we can expect downward pressure on low-skill wages, upward pressure on high-skill wages. <clears throat> now, what happens when the door to trade between the rich and the poor country opens up? Well, now it's possible for each country to shift production. The rich country can shift production away from rice and toward software. It can concentrate in software and import the rest of its rice from the poor country. And the poor country can do the same. The poor country can uh, shift away from software to rice, produce more rice, and import the software it needs from the rich country. This is, this is uh, standard Ricardo from, from the early 19th century. Uh, so the poor country is now producing 
more rice, less software, but this raises the demand for low-skill workers and therefore raises the wage of low-skill workers since software is now being produced less than before, demand for high-skill workers goes down, and we see a reduction in inequality. So what I've just shown you is the standard arguments based on the theory of comparative advantage for why globalization ought to reduce inequality in poor countries. And in fact, this is exactly what happens in uh, a number of previous globalizations. There was a, uh, a big globalization in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, at that time, Europe had a relative abundance of low-skill labor. Uh, the U.S., a relative abundance of high-skill labor. When the uh, floodgates uh, obstructing uh, trade between the U.S. and Europe were, were removed and trade picked up, uh, we, we saw uh, exactly the decrease in inequality in Europe that the theory predicted. So, so it's, it's been a successful theory, but as I said, it's not worked so well for the recent globalization. And it, it's... Uh, it's failed in, in a number of respects. Uh, uh, another prediction that hasn't worked out so well is <clears throat> that greater differences in skill ratios across countries should imply that those countries should trade with one another more. So the, 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 the bigger the difference between the two countries, the, the greater the benefit from trade, so the theory predicts, well, that doesn't... That actually hasn't worked out so well. Uh, there are uh, uh, a number of African countries, for example, among the very poorest in the world with very low high skill to uh, low skill skill ratios uh, who, are, who have basically been left out of globalization altogether. They, they, they don't trade very much with rich industrialized countries at all, contrary to the theory. Uh, and as I've said, an, another failure of the, of the theory is this uh, predicted increase, decrease in inequality. So in the remaining time, I'd like to spend um, a few minutes on outlining an alternative theory should be thought of as a complementary theory. It's not meant to replace the theory of comparative advantage. It's meant to complement the theory of uh, comparative, uh, comparative advantage. It's one that I've been developing in collaboration with Michael Kramer, who is a development economist at Harvard. Uh, and it's going to focus on something I said at the beginning, which is that... Uh, a key feature of the current globalization is that it has entailed the internationalization of production. So uh, uh, a uh, 
simple example of what I mean by the international of production is what's happened to computers. Uh, uh, a computer may well be designed in the U.S. and programmed in Europe and assembled in China. So, so the, that the production process has been itself has been internationalized, and and this internationalization of production will be the uh, most important ingredient in this alternative theory. Uh, the, the alternative theory now requires many skill levels, so, so not just two skill levels. Uh, actually, for my purposes today, I'm going to make do with four skill levels. Uh, and let, let's conceive of production as consisting of different tasks. So in order to produce something, you, you have to fulfill certain, uh, certain tasks uh, one of which I will call the managerial task. That's a task which is uh, relatively sensitive to, to the skill level of the person occupying that task. And the other, uh, which I'll call the subordinate task, is less sensitive to skill. So once again, uh, I want to do a, a little thought experiment or a little example where there are two countries, one rich, one poor, uh, and the rich country is rich because it has workers of higher skill levels. Now, now there are going to be four skill levels, uh, A, B, C, and D, uh, and, the, and A uh, is the, corresponds to the most highly skilled, B second, C third, the D workers are, are the uh, people at the bottom, the people with the fewest skills. And uh, we'll suppose, to make matters simple, that uh, we have pre predominantly workers of skill levels A and B in the rich country, predominantly uh, people of skill level C and D in the poor country. Now, um, as I said, outputs is created by fulfilling tasks, in effect by matching people filling the managerial task with people filling the subordinate task. And the amount of output that is achieved depends on the skill levels of the people in those tasks, in those jobs. Uh, so uh, this is the only uh, mathematical formula uh, of the talk. Uh, but... Uh, there are a lot of economists here, so they're not going to worry about formulas in any case. Uh, <clears throat> this just says that output is equal to the square of the skill of the person occupying the managerial position times the skill of the person uh, occupying the subordinate position. The particular this particular formula is not important. What is important, though, is the idea that output should be more sensitive to the managerial skill than to the subordinate skill. That, that, that is the key. Um, and let, let me illustrate uh, what kind of output we get if, if the manager has skill level four, the subordinate has skill level three, then output will be four times four, four squared, times three, uh, or 48. 
Now, um, what kind of matching are we likely to see if we have a pool of workers of different skills? Uh, well, that's going to be determined by what kind of matching pattern produces the most output. I'm going to suppose that it's a competitive world out there and that, uh, that companies are organized in order to best effectively compete with other companies. So let's imagine that the labor, that the labor force consisted of two three workers, that is two workers of skill level three and two four workers, two um, workers of skill level four, how would we expect them to be matched up with one another to produce output in a competitive labor market? Well, there are, there are two ways that they could be paired. Uh, one way is for a four worker, one of the four workers to be matched with another three worker, the other four worker to be matched with the other three worker. This is what we call cross-matching because we have different skills in the different positions. And if you do the arithmetic, you see that the total output is 96. Uh, but there's another way that the workers could be matched. They could be matched, the four could be matched with the four, the three could be matched with the three. And then if you do the computation, you see that output is 91, that's lower. And so we see that for, for this labor force, we're going to get cross-matching, not what I call homogeneous matching, where, where all of the workers in the firm are more or less of the same skill. However, that results that you get cross-matching rather than homogeneous matching depends on the particular labor force that is available. You change the labor force, let's change the labor force so that we now have two four workers and two two workers. Once again, we can compare cross-matching and homogeneous matching, but now we see that there's higher outputs with homogeneous matching. In this model, there are two forces at work. Uh, because the two uh, because the two tasks are not equally sensitive to skill, there is an argument for cross-matching. You want to have the more skilled people in the managerial task rather than the, in the subordinate task. So that's an argument for variable skills, or what I was calling cross-matching in, in a company. But The, uh, the counter-argument is that if the manager's skill and the subordinate skill are too different, then, in effect, the high skill of the manager is being wasted because she's being paired with this very low-skill subordinate. Uh, her, her high skill is, 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 uh, is going to waste. In that case, homogeneous matching is better. Uh, and so, in equilibrium, in, in, in reality, we're going to see some balance between these two forces. And, and the balance that will be struck will depend on the composition of the labor force. Now, what has globalization done? 
globalization has changed the composition of the labor force because now it's no longer necessary for companies to draw their workers from just a single country, the country where the uh, company might be based. They can draw workers from around the world. And so let, let's look, let's do the same kind of thought experiment we did for the theory of comparative advantage with this alternative theory to see how matching patterns have changed as a result of globalization. Uh, so if you do the computation uh, for, our, uh, for our four skill levels and our two countries, rich country and poor country, by the way, the, 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 the numbers that I'm using uh, for the skill levels of these, but uh, you get you get more or less the same results with by varying these numbers. Uh, Pre-globalization, before, before international production is possible, uh, this is the pattern uh, of production that we see. So, in, in the rich country, we see A workers paired with B workers to produce outputs. In the poor country, we see C workers paired with D workers to produce outputs. That pattern is substantially changed once it becomes possible for companies to hire workers across international boundaries. We go to this matching pattern. So now, what's happened is the, uh, the C workers in the poor country who used to be paired with the D workers are now, in effect, working with B, the B workers of another country. And as I did for the theory of comparative advantage, we can look uh, on the uh, effect that this change has on wages. So what is the effect on uh, on wages. Well, uh, before, before globalization, when we were back to this picture up, up here, the D workers had the advantage of being matched with C workers. Now, you know from experience that if you are working with someone who is more skilled than you, that enhances your own productivity. It's always better to be working with someone who is better than you. Uh, so that, that was the case for D workers before globalization. They were matched with C workers, and thereby uh, getting a higher productivity, and they're therefore getting a higher wage. After globalization, the D workers were left basically to their own devices. They were left behind by globalization, and they uh, either saw a fall in their wages or at least very little increase, whereas the, D, the C workers now got the benefit of being matched across international boundaries with B workers. So the, the D workers' wages fell, and the C workers' wages rose. That is the uh, cause in this theory of an increase in inequality due to, due to 
globalization. Now, uh, that's, that's the theory uh, in two slides. Uh, there are some details that I'm going to have to leave out, but you, I think you get the basic idea. Uh, what's, um, what do we do about this? Uh, it, 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 what, do, what do we do if we care about inequality? Uh, how, can we, uh, how can we bring inequality down if, if we accept this theory? Well, the, the um, clear implication of the theory is that in order to get uh, a reduction of inequality, we somehow have to bring these D workers into the picture. They, they, they have been left behind. They, uh, C workers have these international job opportunities. By the way, that, that doesn't necessarily mean leaving their home country. It's now possible to stay at home and work in some, for some international uh, productive uh, enterprise. Uh, the, if you want to attack inequality, you have to give D workers those, those same opportunities. But that means raising their skill levels. It, through education and job training. And that's costly. So, so a serious question is, who is going to pay for this job training and education? Well, we can't expect the producers, the companies themselves, to do the, uh, to do the investments in education and job training. Why? Uh, because if you, if you hire me, I'm a, if I'm a D worker and you hire me and give me uh, job training, uh, you're going to have to pay me more. So, uh, so some of your investment in me is going to be lost to the higher wages that you now have to pay me. In fact, even worse, you might train me and then I might go to work for your competitor, in which case your investment in me is going to be lost altogether. So, so producers, companies themselves, have an insufficient incentive to uh, invest in D workers. They have some incentive, but, but it's not enough to, to solve this problem by itself. And we can't expect the workers themselves to make the investment because we're talking about some of the poorest people in the world, the, these D workers, don't have the resources to be able to pay for, for job training um, and education. So that means that some third party has to get involved. Uh, it could be domestic government. What One thing that government can do, besides providing education directly, is to give subsidies to companies that train um, D workers. Uh, this is something that international agencies, NGOs, can get involved in. It can be, it can even take the form of foreign aid. But the point is that it, someone has to do it. It's not going to happen by itself. Producers are not going to do it because they don't have the incentive, and workers are not going to do it because they can't afford to. Uh, so. 
in summary, if, if, you, if you accept this, this way of looking uh, at the recent globalization, at, and, and I emphasize it's not meant to replace the old theory, but simply to add a production complement to, uh, to the consumption uh, component provided by the theory of comparative advantage. If, if, you, if you accept this theory, then the right course of action, of course, is not to stop globalization. That, uh, trying to stop globalization first is, is impossible, but even if it were possible, uh, we would be you know, cutting off our nose to spite our face. Globalization does bring uh, huge benefits. On average, it's the, 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 the problem, of course, is with the distribution of those benefits. Uh, rather, what we should do more of is allowing the low-skill workers, the D workers, to share the, the benefits of globalization uh, by uh, investing in their participation in global markets. Uh, and with that observation, uh, I will stop, and uh, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Professor Maskin, for your speech. And I hope you all find it intellectually stimulating. And because Professor Maskin has other commitments today, so he has to leave the auditorium now. So let's give him another round of applause. <laughs> now let's welcome our second speaker, Dr. Yan Talensky founder of Aqua City, onto the stage. Dr. Talensky, please. President, uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I'd like to apologize for my voice. It's a great handicap for a speaker to lose his voice, but I hope it'll last till the end. Uh, Professor Maskin's speech was very interesting because it showed one thing. It showed problems which exist at least for the past 5,000 years. We see that nothing has changed. And what I would like to talk to you about, how Chinese culture, Chinese philosophers, and uh, great Chinese people made a mark in my life. Uh, as you can see, the uh, ideas which we've seen have repeated many times in the past. And the answer is always in the youth. There we have it. The young people are the most active and vital force in society. They are the most eager to learn and the least conservative in their thinking. Who said that? <laughs> Who did? 
absolutely. <laughs> now, you see, I learned that when I was at the age of 12 in Czechoslovakia. Every day, we had one quotation from Chairman Mao. <laughs> and I know it almost by heart. And as you can see, what a great idea. The answer is the young people. Now, the responsibility of today's youth is to reinterpret. You have a very difficult task. You came from nowhere. Everybody wants to learn Chinese. My, my son is learning Chinese in his school. And when I went to Harrods for sale this year, there was more Chinese people in Harrods than in Beijing. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, everybody wants to learn what you do. Because, but everybody's asking question, what? Where's the imbalance in China? Because there, we know there is imbalance in the world. But if there is a great imbalance in China, it will affect the rest of the world. The master said, when a youth is at home, let him be filial. When abroad, respected to his elders, let him be circumspect and truthful. And while exhibiting a comprehensive love of all men, let him ally himself with good. Having so acted, if he have energy to spare, let him employ in polite studies. Who said that? Well, of course, Quanzhou, Confucius. Analog number 36. Now, this is a man which I discovered about 15 years ago. I studied all his analogs, and my biggest compliment when I was in China in, uh, uh, <coughs> in Jufu, in the uh, People's University, we were arguing about analogs, and a professor of that university had to admit after lunch that I was right about Confucius' analog, and he was wrong, and he was teaching it. A great man, a great visionary, and great moralist. I promise you, in my business, I use a lot Chairman Mao, and I use a lot Confucius. I was born in Prague in communist country. I was forbidden education because my family believed in God and that was against the bread. I was predicted to be a bricklayer or locksmith. I was a good musician, which as you know Confucius was. <laughs> I love music, I still do. I play in a chamber orchestra, violin. And I must tell you, I bought violin from a gypsy in 1992 and forgot all about them. And for a week during the Christmas, I was very excited. Because when I did the audit of the instruments, I looked inside and it said Antonius Stradivarius Cremonius, 1722. I thought I had real Stradivari. Well, to tell you the truth, they were not real. They were very good copy, but they are still worth 200,000 pounds, but I only paid 50 pounds for it. So, so I think... I think sometimes in business you need to uh, be a little bit lucky. I was lucky to leave for Czechoslovakia in 1969, started from nowhere. And, you know, I like the word self-made man. Because if a man is self-made, it exonerates God from any responsibility. <laughs> because we all know <laughs> that God made all of us. So I sometimes resent 
the title of being uh, self-made. And you look at your culture, you look at how great people you have become. I must tell you the story I heard in Hawaii about two months ago from an American who said that uh, you know, uh, President Putin and uh, Barack Obama had a problem about what's going to happen in the future. So they went to see this wise woman and says, would you please tell us, what's going to be the world like in 20 years? And the wise woman says, I see a red flag over White House, to which Putin was very pleased. So Putin says, what do you see about Kremlin? He says, well, I also see a red flag. He says, great. But could you please describe a little bit more detail that red flag? To which the wise woman replied, I'm sorry, I can't read Chinese. <laughs> so, we are leaving Czechoslovakia, starting from nothing. I'm doing the long march from zero, doing various things. I won't bore you with it. And then I came to the conclusion of the great thinkers like Confucius, like Sun Tzu, like Chairman Mao. You're talking, about, you're talking about the influence of Chinese culture. Do you know when the greatest influence of Chinese culture came to Europe? Anybody can tell me. The greatest, which shaped Europe and which rebalanced Europe. Well, I'll tell you, it was the end of 19th century. I have here the translation in English of the first edition of Art of War by Sun Tzu. In 1722 it was in French. And I have published a book about Wellington. How does it compare? Well, Napoleon Bonaparte was an expert in Sun Tzu and by his practice won 34 battles out of 36. He only did one mistake. He left the book of Art of War in his belongings when he lost the first battle, Battle of Leipzig. And Wellington found it, translated it into English, and then he defeated him at Battle of Waterloo. So, you Chinese people have totally rebalanced Europe. Now, you have a beautiful day today. It goes perfect. Chairman Ma says, the world is yours, as well as ours. But in the last analysis, it's yours. You young people, full of vigor and vitality, are in bloom of life. Like the sun at 8 or 9. Did you see the sun at 8 and 9 o'clock this morning? I did. <laughs> I did see. Have you seen the sun for the past two weeks? No. But we've seen the sun this morning. Our hope is placed in you. The world belongs to you. And the China future belongs to you all. So as far as I'm concerned, I don't see the problem of rebalancing. We need you. We need you to rebalance a lot of way of our thinking. By the way, when I went to Chufu University, they called me, my name is Yan. So they told me Yahweh. Do you know anybody who's Yahweh was? 
He was the most favorite pupil of Confucius. He said that he was very modest. He was the poorest. And he became gray at the age of 30, how hard he was studying all the learning of Confucius. So, look both at the national-international perspective and fear and fear of no change. Now, you know very well what is the interpretation of fear. Let's see if I have it here. The fear is F-E-A-R. And it means face everybody and run. <laughs> or face everybody and rise. It has two totally different meanings. My philosophy is I always face everybody and rise. And so did all your great ancestors. They faced everybody. And what is the name of your country? It's called Middle Earth. In globalization, middle says what it is. You are now in the middle. And everybody is around you. And therefore, your influence is vital to the development of the future world. I follow it. I follow your leaders. I follow your historians. And I find it. It helps me in my business it helps me in my moral thinking. I employ quite a few Chinese people. We do the red envelopes on the new Chinese year. And I'm very pleased to meet my good friend, Dr. Malia, whose year it is. Because it says exactly, it does exactly what it says on the tin. Dr. Ma, it's the year of the horse. There you go. <laughs> it's the right year for you. I hope you will prosper. And I hope everything will work for you. He's a great friend. He brought me to China and he taught me a lot. And I've learned a lot uh, uh, from him. So, the creativity. you the creation. You are the creativity. You must. We must encourage you young people to be creative. And remember the ideas. You have fantastic idea, And you can never destroy idea, But you can betray it. And you must never betray the ideas which were given to you by ancestors, by your leaders. You must never betray it because the minute you betray it, you lose absolutely everything. So, ladies and gentlemen, I thank you very much for your time. I'm so pleased. Today I felt like being in Bugatti Veyron, 160 miles an hour, on the fastest ring in Europe. It's frightening, it's exhilarating. It's exciting, and I thank you for giving you, giving me your opportunity to be with you today and remind myself the journey of my life, which always had China and Chinese people in it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Talensky, for your inspiring speech. Uh, next. Uh, Let's welcome. Okay. Now let's welcome uh, Mr. Stephen Perry, who's the chairman of the 48 Group Club. Let's. No, no, no. I'm going to do the unacceptable and read a speech, but um, I, it's very difficult to follow that, isn't it? Um, such an interesting innovation. Uh, to focus on Confucius, Chairman Mao, and youth, which is, of course, very, very right. I mean, 
This is why we're all here together today, because of uh, the young nature of the audience today. And uh, maybe you can learn from us and, and, and gain some uh, perspectives about uh, our views on the world and China and uh, develop from that. Excuse me if I'm going to read today, because uh, what I do with something like this is either speak uh, what's in my mind, uh, or sometimes I wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and everything's clear to me, and then I write it down. Whether it is or not, we'll find out. But if you don't mind, I'm going to read today. So for those of you who want to sleep, now's a good time. But uh, excuse me to the uh, interpreters, because I'm going to read quite fast as well. <laughs> so for those of you who are listening in Chinese, tell me if they get it right. How's Kevin? Is he okay? Yeah, send in my regards. Right. Today is uh, another episode. I wish I had those Obama things like that and I could pretend to be doing it. Today is another episode in the Chinese students at the LSE taxing global big thinkers on their China analysis. I'm getting serious, sorry. Today, as chairman of the 48 Group and author of the blog ChinaGlobalImpact.com, I'm here with 62 years of collected experience on China. 40 years of it in my own work of commodity trading with China, marketing their consumer goods in the UK and USA markets, and 30 years' experience of advising major global corporations on their China strategies. Sounds good, doesn't it? I'm not very impressed. For me, this event is the time in the year when I get up in the morning of the conference at 4 a.m. and refine my year's thinking, drawing on the collective wisdoms of the people participating in this conference we all met last night, and I learned a great deal from them. But I also apply the watching, reading, and experiencing of the recent and long term. I'm a great believer in the China story. I think it's worked, and I think it will work. I have seen good and bad. I have experienced good and bad. I am not naive about China. But nor do I think I know what is best for China. I think the party today that leads China was born out of huge experiences of good and bad. And the first attempt to modernize China was started in 1964 and ended by the Cultural Revolution. The second phase started with the overthrow of the Gang of Four and the return to the thinking of 1964. The plan was simple but huge and beyond the imagination of anyone I know outside China. It was to modernize China through low-cost exports. That would bring in employment, capital, and a new economy, which would transform China forever and involve moving a nation of 95% peasants to 60% peasants by 2000. Politics in command was gone. Economic development was the new main theme. The second phase, which they started experimenting with 10 years ago and have just started rolling out to public eyes, is to transform the Chinese economy into a market economy managed in overall planning by the party and government, with the private sector accounting for an increasing percentage of the economy, but with, and this is important, the strategic shareholders of different types and powerful regulators in key sectors being the managers of the market economy from a macro position. The reorganization of financial services and the development of the Chinese welfare state are just two huge aspects 
of the new China that will emerge over the next seven years as China goes towards its first stage of 2021, a medium-sized economy with a per capita of $20,000. Excuse me. This will involve urbanization, which will take China from that 40% urbanization in the early 2000s to 70% urban by the 2020s. This urbanization will develop major domestic demand, but slowly. And in the meantime, the huge investment in infrastructure to open central and western China will continue to drive the domestic component. This is not a choice between personal consumption and Keynesian pump priming, but a reality of China's needs and the conservatism of Chinese citizens' use of their own money. This will then move into a further period between 2021 and 2049 of developing socialism with Chinese characteristics, which means for me, in essence, the more fair distribution of the nation's wealth through taxation and other means. Some may say that Chinese socialism with Chinese characteristics is similar to responsible capitalism. That is a debate we have yet to see unfold, but it is clear that for those nations concerned with the well-being of their citizens, that China's march to modernity contains many elements of what is needed to transform the poorer nations and the fault lines of Western economies who have overextended welfare and underinvested in manufacturing and allowed financial services to wag the tail instead of serving the economy. China's health sector, for example, will be about 6% of GDP compared to that of the United States at 17%. China will have moved its population from 95% peasant to 80% urban. It will be forever part of the world and not a visitor to the outside world. The Chinese dream will sustain the spiritual direction of China and inform its global footprint. We will not see Chinese Disney's and Coca-Cola, but we will see China as a major factor in the reshaping of regional and global institutions. For those who wish to see China simply buy into Western-created global institutions, there will not be satisfaction. China does not wish to take over the West or Asia, but it does want new global structures that meet the needs of the newly shaped world. Some may see China as a threat, Some may try to use China to make others shiver. This is the normal reaction to new products and new competitors. But China will allow foreign access to its market in levels not even contemplated in the West, let alone planned for by Western companies. The great opening up of the China market will occur in the next 10 to 15 years, and China's global investment to assure itself of resources, export value and safety will pick up up pace in the next five years. China is rebalancing towards a domestic-driven economy, but the self-reliance they sought is impossible because of the resources they need to share. China knows what nations who grew and tried to grab their resources and became empires failed one after the other. That is the good news. China knows military processes can buy them nothing except self-defense, It is the creation of new global and regional structures which China is focused upon 
and which are the challenge for the West to turn its positive thinking towards. TPPA, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, and EU-NAFTA trade agreements are protectionist in their essence and will not be sustainable while pointed at one or two nations. But at the same time, China will change to allow the market access that those ideas aim to create. This is the significance of the foreign trade zones, in my opinion. The rebalancing of China is in the hands of experienced and capable people. The global compact that is needed is yet to be explored and is a vital component for China and for all of us. Corruption of power and money has threatened the Chinese soul, and I have seen and worried deeply about its footprint. The need to develop accountability, reliable legal structures and modesty are recognised, but our Western ways are the result of our histories, and China is challenged to find its way to a modern and moral state. But China will do it their way. Remember that phrase, if nothing else, China will do it their way. We're very fortunate uh, to have with us today Mark Tucker, because he's going to show us a great deal of the understanding of China's rebalancing in more detail rather than my general overview. And uh, we thought possibly I was a better link man between the deeply philosophical approach of the last speaker and the more scientific approach of Mark. I've no idea whether I succeeded. Thank you. Good morning. It's a, it's a great pleasure to, to be here. I work for a life insurance company that was born in China 100 years ago, and I have lived and worked in Hong Kong for the last 25 years. Like all China watchers, I have studied both the words and actions of the government since the recent party plenum, and I'm very struck by the growing confidence with which Chinese policymakers recognize the need to rebalance the economy and the levers that they have at their disposal to do so. A blueprint of the reform is known as the 383 plan. It's not exactly the classic 343 football formation, but it's an impressive blueprint from the Chinese Central Government's Development Research Center on rebalancing the Chinese economy, which is, of course, the theme of today's forum. I would like to provide, firstly, four points of context for both this rebalancing stage of China's reform agenda and my own comments today. Let me start the first being the long-term view. You all probably know the famous reply that Premier Zhou Enlai gave when asked about his impact, about the impact of the French Revolution of 1789 on Western civilization. He is said to have replied, it is too early to tell. Taking the long-term view in China goes back not centuries, but millennia. It is certainly not the day-to-day -day attention span of the media, the markets, and all too frequently politicians. 
Second, gradualism. Deng Xiaoping famously talked about crossing the river by feeling the stones to describe the gradual and experimental nature of China's transition from a planned to a market economy. That cautious, gradual, yet progressive approach continues to be a hallmark of Chinese reform. Third, the trinity of reform in the 383 blueprint. Rather than just being about two sides of the river, from plan to market, the trinity of reform is about establishing an efficient relationship between and among the government, the market, and companies. It is a holistic approach that I will discuss in more detail later, and one that is not easily captured by a single discipline. Fourth, I believe slower quantitative growth represents better qualitative growth. Growth will slow from the average annual rates of over 10% of the past decades to close to 7.5% or even 7% over the next five years. In my view, this is a welcome change. It is a deliberative and thoughtful policy adjustment towards rebalancing. Why do I think that lower economic growth is more desirable at this stage? I think some important facts here. In the first instance, growth as low as 6% in 2018, which is what the EIU, EIU are projecting, will produce more output in absolute terms than last year's growth of 7.7%, due clearly to the base effect being higher. But much more importantly, slower quanti quantitative growth will step the, set the stage to deliver better qualitative growth moving forward. The high growth era was enormously impressive. China's economy grew in current dollar terms from 306 billion in 1980 to 9.3 trillion last year, roughly 3.5 times the size of the UK economy. GDP per capita increased from $317 in 1980 to about 7,000 last year, and that's more than a 20-fold increase. The incredible economic performance has lifted nearly 600 million people out of poverty, according to the World Bank's definition. And the World Bank notes that without the fall in China's poverty rate, from 85% to under 16% in the last 30 years, the world would have not made much progress on poverty reduction. It has been a very impressive accomplishment, not only in terms of Chinese history, but indeed the history of the world. The high growth era, however, created several structural imbalances and stresses in the economy. First of all, the pace and nature of this growth generated even more extreme differences in personal wealth between industrialised and rural provinces and between haves and have-nots in the urbanised areas than would normally be this stage, normally at this stage in the economic lift-off of a developing country. Second, it created environmental issues that are impacting health standards right across China. And third, and particular interest to life insurers like myself, is the emergence of what we call the protection gap, which I will discuss in more detail later. The 383 blueprint addresses some of the imbalances of the high growth era. In particular, there are three largely social reforms and four financial sector reforms in the new plan that I would like to talk about a bit, followed by what I 
what I believe to be the most important issue for China, the construction of a social security net. China needs to reconstruct its social security, social safety net in order to move to the next stage of its economic development and avoid the so-called middle-income trap. The three social reforms are firstly the end of the hukou or household registration system, secondly liberalisation of the one-child policy, and finally land reform. The household registration system, as you know, is to be phased out under the new plan. The original intent of this system of basically tying people to the place that they were born is a relic of the past when China literally tried to keep peasants down on the farm. Some of these farmers, nevertheless, migrated to the cities and their children are sometimes denied access to education and health care in the urban areas because of their technically undocumented status. The reform of the system would afford them the opportunity for the social and economic advancement that comes with urbanisation. It is a very welcome change. Similarly, the one-child policy. This has outlived its usefulness. China's one-child policy took Malthusian fears and family planning to an extreme. The reform of this policy should be seen as a gradual normalisation that inherently recognises personal freedom linked to social contentment and harmony, and again is a very welcome change. And the last of the three is land reform. For those of us old enough to remember 1979 and those that have studied 1949, land reform has been a critical element in China's economic development. More recently, the conversion of rural land for urban development has led to conflicts that have been solved by administrative or diplomatically extra-legal means. Land sales have also been a major source of corruption, particularly at the local level. And this has been one of the largest, if not the largest, source of social discontent in China. The central government recognises all of this, and the move to marketise collectively held land is, in my view, a smart step in the right direction. As China now embraces a new wave of urbanisation, marketisation of collective land is part of a broader scheme to move away from land land sales as a funding source for local governments. And again, this process is a very welcome change. While these social reforms are all very positive, to me the most important and far-reaching economic reforms of the third plenum focus on the financial sector. Here we have four key reforms in prospect, all of which have important implications for social stability. The first, liberalisation of interest rates, The second, the deepening of the domestic capital markets. The third, the internationalisation of the RMB. And the fourth, the opening of the capital account. Liberalisation of interest rates is by far the most important of these reforms. I think, as you know, until very recently, both deposit and lending rates in China were fixed by the authorities. Deposit rates were often set at low or even negative real rates, while borrowing rates were similarly fixed at low levels that did not reflect the true risks. The distortion of what was in effect a subsidy from consumers to industry cannot be overstated. Consumers received less than they should have from their hard-earned savings, and industry was more or less granted access to cheap credit, 
which in turn led to excessive and inefficient borrowing. And of course it was the relatively inefficient large state-owned enterprises who enjoyed access to this subsidised credit rather than the more dynamic SMEs. The good news is that this, this imbalance is now being addressed with the liberalisation of interest rates. It will provide households with higher returns on their savings and invigorate SMEs as they will now be able to access the formal banking system and not have to rely on shadow banking for access to capital. And ultimately this will contribute to the multiplier effect and generate greater personal wealth and well-being. Let me just stop briefly to, to make a, a critical point. The total liberalisation of interest rates is not going to happen overnight. It will be a gradual process, as has been the case with reform for the past 35 years. But this is very much a critical step in the right direction. And the sequencing of when, which types of rates are liberalised, will be extremely important. The second aspect of financial sector reform centres on deepening of domestic capital markets. That is to expand the role of direct financing and reduce the over-dependence on bank credit. China's credit to GDP ratio is already high by international standards and credit growth has been particularly high since 2009, prompting concerns over a credit bubble and financial instability. While China's domestic equity market now ranks among the largest in the world in terms of market capitalization, many Chinese companies continue to face significant hurdles in getting equity financing with a long queue for IPOs. The market is also plagued by lack of transparency, lack of sound corporate governance, and lack of professional investors. And furthermore, the bond market remains grossly underdeveloped. As a result, long-term investors, such as life insurers and pension funds, lack a major instrument of investment for asset liability management. In particular, the recent focus on local government financing platforms highlights the fundamental need for your municipal bond market in China. Third here, the internationalization of the RMB. Again, this has, this has to be and has been a slow process, but one that is just about to accelerate. The RMB was liberalized for trade purposes nearly 15 years ago. On the capital account, there have been a series of small steps, an alphabet soup, if you will, such as QFII, QDII, etc. Comply, combined with a dim sum platter of RMB bonds and banking deposits in Hong Kong. Again, I do not believe that the RMB will replace or even rival the US dollar, the euro or sterling as an international reserve currency anytime soon. But central banks and foreign exchange centres around the world, including here in London, are already holding significant lines of credit and trading positions. This trend will accelerate. And fourthly, the capital accounts opening. The capital account opening goes hand in hand with internationalization of the RMB. The alphabet soup of investment schemes and the dim sum bonds of Hong, of Hong, Kong, originated, Hong Kong originated with capital trying to get into and then out of China, basically related to financing production of low value added goods for the export sector. Now we have inward and outward direct investment flows as well as an increase in portfolio flows both into and out of China for all sectors in the economy. 
My business ties together these, these social and financial sector reforms. And I can best demonstrate this as a response to the protection gap. The shortfall between a population's need for financial provision for adversity and Ill, Ill health and the levels of insurance and savings actually in place to cover that risk. More than even the rest of developing Asia, China has an unusually high savings rate, running about 50% of GDP for most of the past decade. Simply put, Chinese household, households are not just saving for a rainy day. They are saving for their old age, for their children's education, and for unforeseen tragedies such as illness, death, or disability of a loved one. And due to regulated interest rates and lack of financial sector reforms up until now, Chinese households were saving rather inefficiently through no fault of their own. And this is where I come back to my point about the protection gap. China has one of the largest protection gaps in the world, and addressing it ties together both social and finance sector reforms. The protection gap exists across all of Asia, but China's is especially acute due to the so-called smashing of the iron rice bowl. As I'm sure you know, the old planned economy provided basic social welfare benefits to Chinese individuals through their work unit or their company. As the old system was dismantled, social welfare benefits, housing, health care, education, pensions and retirement were by and large done away with. Private insurers were allowed to enter the market and my company, as which I say, was founded in China in 1919. We entered China in 1992 and was one of many that began to introduce modern insurance practices and products to selected cities. As an industry, we have made a lot of progress in China since then and China has, itself has changed in enormous ways. But the large protection gap remains a serious problem. The protection gap and other imbalances, such as we heard earlier, income inequality and environmental degradation, are being or will be addressed in the reform trinity that I mentioned earlier. The reform blueprint is very much market-oriented. Market it outlines how to rationalise the government into being an administrative regulator rather than an active participant in the market. That's a critically important distinction. The last significant SOE reform plan was called Hold On to the Big, Let Go of the Small. And so the big SOEs who controlled the commanding heights of the economy remained in mostly state-owned hands, while the smaller ones were freed from state control. We are now at the stage of letting go of the big, or at the very least having the state become more of an investor-owner along the lines of Singapore's Temasek as opposed to the State Planning Commission of old. The government will, con will obviously continue to have a key role to play in major infrastructure projects, but as a means of facilitating investment. Private companies will bring more stringent for feasibility and cost-benefit analysis to potential infrastructure uh, and investment projects. Up until now, I've been talking mostly about the reform blueprint as opposed to actual actions taken by the Chinese government. In terms of concrete actions, I would like to point to key, two key developments. Firstly, the achievements in rebalancing China's external accounts since 2008. And secondly, the, the Shanghai Free Trade Zone. 
The external balancing story can be summed up with one key statistic. China had a current account surplus of just over 10% of GDP in 2007 versus just under 2% in 2013. Exports accounted for 18% of Chinese growth in 2007, while there were a slight drag on growth last year. This is an enviable and I think very, very underappreciated external rebalancing. We have for not, for example, seen equivalent rebalancing to face up to the financial realities of financial imbalances within the Eurozone. The establishment of the Shanghai Free Trade Zone, to my mind, is a watershed event. Again, those of us old enough to remember the initial special economic zones, or SAZs, in Shenzhen and the south of China, know that they heralded the beginning of China's economic transformation from an economic backwater to a global manufacturing powerhouse. Shanghai was specifically not included as one of the first SOEs in the 1980s, even though it was historically China's domestic manufacturing centre. Shanghai was excluded precisely because it was seen as too important to fail in the event, in the, in the, the experiment with market capitalism proved to be a mistake. The fact that Shanghai is now the site of a services FTZ, especially financial services, is therefore monumentally significant. To my mind, the Shanghai free trade zone aims to be to services what the Shenzhen SEZ was to manufacturing for both China and the world. It is a very bold and exciting experiment in administrative reform. I have outlined a lot that is positive in both the plans and actions of the new Chinese administration. However, there is much more to be done. Let me give you a few relevant examples. China has been a member of the World Trade Organization since 2001, yet it still does not afford foreign companies national treatment within its borders. My company is listed, domiciled, incorporated, and regulated in Hong Kong, who are actually the largest company on the, the largest domesticated, uh, incorporated company on the Hang Seng Index. Hong Kong is clearly part of China, yet we are treated as a non-domestic company and have geographic restrictions placed on our operations within China. Mainland Chinese insurers have protected status, which denies Chinese households the full benefits of market competition. There are similar restrictions in other sectors of the economy, notably telecommunications, and automobile manufacturing. But it is the financial sector that has had the most restrictive policies to date. The Shanghai Free Trade Zone outlines the start of a scheme to seriously open up financial services to both more domestic and international companies. It is an exciting opportunity, and I encourage you to watch and study it. Let me conclude with some historical context and provide an update to the famous quote from Liang Qichao of the late Qing dynasty. Chinese learning for the essence and Western learning for use. Over 100 years later, there is now a lot of practical use to be found in, China, in studying China's experience of high growth over the past, past 35 years. And the next five years will be no different as China adapts to its next stage of development. China's experience has enhanced Western learning and made us all intellectually richer. 
Understanding the next, next stage in China's move towards a market economy is no longer an academic issue only for China watchers. China's progress over the last three decades and the economic power that it has developed into means that its continuing progress over the next decades, whether in terms of poverty reduction, qualitative growth, or contribution to rebuilding the global financial system, will be of practical importance for the rest of the world's economy and the policies adopted in the developed world. We need to study China in even greater depth, to understand China from within instead of observing China from outside, and then to learn and apply those lessons in our dealings with China. And so my personal update of Liang Qingqiao's insightful words would be this. Study China for its essence, its value, and its integrative role in the global economy. I'm honored to be in speaker today, and I hope you have a great day ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Tucker, for your informative and insightful speech. Next, we shall hold a Q&A session for Mr. Stephen Perry and Mr. Tucker. The chair for this session is Professor Danny Kwa. Professor Danny Kwa is the Professor of Kuwait Economics and International Development at LSE. So without further ado, let's kick off this session. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you, Frank. And since I'm one of the hosts here, let me again welcome everyone to this very exciting event. Um, I've, I'm sitting here between the two people that you've just heard from, Stephen Perry and Mark Tucker, and no more do I feel redundant and surplus to requirement than sitting here between the two of these powerful personalities. Um, the two of you have given you expert overviews from a macro perspective and from a drill-down, more micro perspective on what's happening most recently in China. The goal of this session is to open up to question and answer and engage the audience um, in the expertise of the two people up here. I want to turn over to the audience in just a quick second, but I can't resist the airtime that I've been given to just inject two quick comments about our speakers. You will all have already seen the bios of these individuals up here. I do not need to say anything to convince you of their credibility and the, power, the authority in what they say. I just thought it might be useful to point out that in addition to all the corporate business uh, policy activity that, Professor Tuck, um, that Mr. Tucker just elevated him, um, has already been engaged in, there might be one fact that many of you don't know about him. Unlike probably everyone else in this room, Mark began his working life as a professional footballer. <laughs> so, well, I believe it. So, just to kick off before he begins, let me visualize for you that when faced with a life ahead of him of what in English newspapers 
they call wags, or what the rest of us think of as footballer wives and girlfriends. <laughs> Mark decided for the high road, and he went into business, and now shapes the world. Stephen Perry, on the other hand. <laughs> Is, yes, has long been a good friend to the LSE and to the China Development Society. He is a major intellectual force in the landscape in London, writing and interpreting current developments in China. He chairs the 48 Group Club, and many people will already know the distinguished history that the 48 Group the so-called icebreakers has in the development of the global economy, really. The 48 group were the original group of 48 business people from UK businesses to venture into engagement and trade with China in the 1950s. And although it's difficult to think about that era now, you should remember that there was a time of the Cold War of major trade embargoes, of huge suspicion that the world had on different countries experimenting with political and economic organizations different from that that we saw on the transatlantic axis. It's a huge distinguished history that sits before the two of, before you in the, in the two people I've got here on this panel. And I hope you all take full advantage of the wisdom that's been accumulated here by asking them good, penetrating questions on the range of topics that they've already discussed. So once again, I welcome all of you to this event, and I especially welcome the two speakers that we've got up here. Let me turn now to the audience. If those of you who wish to ask questions, if you could stand up, you know that this is being recorded. If you could stand up, identify yourself quickly, and then by all means use a few sentences to set a context for your question, but don't deliver a mini lecture to the people in this here. Okay, so the, the woman up there in red, if you could just stand up and uh, say your name and affiliation and then ask your question. Um, Dr. Christina Yanjang, hi, Danny. Nice to see you again. Nice to see and, you. Uh, uh, actually, um, I'm quite curious about you know the rise of internet-based you know financial sector in China at this moment, because we have heard a lot about the quote from you know the founder of Alibaba, Jack Ma, and he said if the banking sector is not going to change themselves, we are going to change you. And now we see very interesting uh, tension, especially with the rise of WeChat, of 600 million you know user in China and another 100 overseas. They used the red envelope over the Spring Festival recently to massively attract you know, the user to use WeChat-based finance. So how is that going to impact on the proposed you know, financial sector reform across China and uh, how overseas you know, investors could possibly you know, collaborate or grab this opportunity. Thank, Thank you. you, Christina. Let's take, a, let's take a round of three questions or so before I, I hand over to the speakers. So, gentlemen in here, in the middle, if you could wait for the microphone that's coming towards you now, just on your right, on your left. Thank you very much. 
uh, Roger Garside, I'm a student of China. Um, I was very interested in Mr. Tucker's uh, uh, exposure. Um, of very optimistic reading of the third plenum. Um, the, but I'd like to ask him about uh, two caveats that we perhaps should face um, upon. Um, the communicator of the third plenum said that um, the supremacy of party leadership must be maintained. Secondly, it said that the dominance of the state sector must be maintained. Um, is there not a tension here between those two um, restrictions uh, and the um, marketization which was also uh, proposed by the further marketization proposed um, by the uh, penal? Um, what are, in your view, the crunch decisions, the crunch issues which will determine which way this goes, whether politics remains in command of economics or uh, the economy um, uh, takes over. From Thank you very much, Roger. One last question from over here. The woman who's got her hand up in, in back. Uh, thank you for your speech. Um, I have a question for uh, Mark Tucker, uh, uh, Professor Tucker, or Dr. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, because you, uh, because you just mentioned about Shanghai freeze, uh, free trade zone, and uh, you mentioned that there are some changes and improvements can be made in, uh, in finance, insurance, and uh, domestic international aspects and also high-end technology. So can you just um, uh, give some concrete suggestions on those areas? Do you think there are some still shortcomings, uh, especially in high-end technology, like um, ensure the food uh, safety, and how can we do about it? Thank you. Thank you very much. If we could begin with Mark. <laughs> Just, just treat the, treat the issues that you think you want to speak Okay. Then, then let me try and uh, sort of deal with uh, uh, or give my views on, on all three questions uh, and do it briefly and then clearly pass to, to, to Stephen. Uh, in terms of the internet and the, the effect on financial services, uh, I think it's, it's going to be, we're clearly at a, an enormously early stage. Uh, I think the the questions that Jack Ma and others are looking at uh, and the question the regulators in China are looking at is, again, how do people enter regulated industries and how can the regulators actually, uh, how can the regulators actually manage that? Uh, I think without, uh, without very clear rules on all of that, uh, without the right licenses, without the right f focus, uh, this could lead to, to chaos. And at the moment, uh, internet, the internet... Uh, uh, people like Jack Ma cannot be bankers. The interpretation of that is uh, is widening. We've seen Peter Ma at Ping An again come in with uh, with some new ideas. This is evolving. I think the issue here is going to be uh, how the, the role of the regulators uh, and where they uh, where they step in. In terms of the the, the, the third plenum and the, the, the caveats, the the question. My, my view, 
what they've said in the last uh, in the last little while, and certainly uh, uh, what I've heard both in China and Hong Kong, uh, is a phase that uh, the new government has looked left and turned right. The basis here is managing, uh, as Deng Xiaoping did, is managing the political element and then moving across and actually uh, being able to make the reforms that are necessary. Uh, and I think from, from what I've seen and observed, the, uh, the CLE partnership has been very effective in doing that. Uh, and therefore, I think the, the basis, there needs to be always an understanding and acceptance of the political element. But I think the the clarity that I have seen and the words of this plenum, uh, uh, which again you study over the last, uh, the last 30 years, there's never been language used like this, and certainly this is the first language since the Den, uh, Deng Xiaoping era, that I think the, the reforms will come through very strongly. So there's no ignoring of the political side, but it's a clear understanding uh, of what needs to be done there, but then again moving, uh, looking left and, and turning right. In terms of the, 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 the free trade zone, uh, a number of different factors, and I think there's a number of questions within the question. Uh, in China, there still remains the negative list. So there's still a number of industries, of which one, my industry is one, which is, a negative, which is on the negative list, which means that we cannot just go and start businesses. We need to get permission through the authorities. What Shanghai is trying to do is move away from that negative list uh, and basically allow, well, put that list, shorten that list, and then allow others to, uh, to basically start without having the permission. Everything in China to, to date has been you have to have approval. The Shanghai Free Trade Zone is moving really to, to policy reform where you don't have to have approval. If it's on the negative list, you clearly you cannot do it, but everything that's not on the negative list, you can do, and that's an enormous, uh, enormous change. I think the technology, let me just say, Danny, the, the technology question is a great question. Uh, why has China not produced uh, a Silicon Valley, uh, uh, given the intelligence, the ability, the skills of the people? Uh, and I think that's clearly, uh, again, a focus of, uh, of government on, uh, on, on innovation and the need to, to innovate more. Uh, but I think, uh, uh, so it's best to end at that point. I could talk... For longer, let Stephen, uh, let Stephen look. Okay, thank you, Mark. Stephen, can I turn over to you now? Sure, I was worried where you were going to go to with me before having started with Mark in his football outfit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th I think I've just reinforced what Mark said about, uh, in answer to the first question, uh, regulation, regulation, regulation. If the Chinese um, have been experimenting with ten, for 10 years with regulation, and we in the West have a lot to learn from their effectiveness in regulation, the role of regulators. It is the uh, effective positioning of the regulators in the development of this industry which will work. Um, if it doesn't, we'll have a shadow banking crisis. And uh, I think the shadow banking crisis has convinced a lot of people that in China that they need to have a stronger regulation and stronger structures. On the second question, I don't think there's a difference between... Um, politics and economics. I think in China, the politics is first every time, and the economics uh, it flows from that. And the politics of uh, the current era is to move from a very micromanaged economy to a macromanaged economy. 
So the political involvement in the operations of the state-owned enterprises that you were asking about is going to be reduced. The state-owned enterprises will need to be more responsive to the market. But before we think in terms of privatization, uh, we'd need to look at ourselves at our Western experience. It's very mixed as to whether privatization is effective or state-owned enterprises can be uh, effective. The Chinese have done their research over many, many years and will be reforming the state-owned enterprises to deliver what they need to deliver, which is good services at competitive prices. But you'll also see increasing participation from the private sector to stimulate that. Uh, so I agree with, uh, again, with Mark on uh, looking left, turning right is one way of seeing it. But I think it's just the, the party and government is moving to a higher level. On the third question of the, of the free trade zones, I think it, it, it's, again, a reflection of that move of China and is preparing the way for a, a major restructuring of the financial services industry. On the question, just quickly, of uh, why China hasn't uh, been more successful in, in innovation, I think China is the most successful country in innovation in the history of the world. The question is why it has not been successful in this era of its development, and that has got a lot to do with things that have gone on in the last 50, 60 years. The, the West, rest of the world, the major um, multinationals that we saw talked about in the first um, contribution today, have invested huge amounts of money in innovation. And um, I'd recommend you to read a little bit about what Peter Nolan has to say about this from Cambridge. Um, he thinks the gap is increasing. I'm a little less, I mean, I'm not an academic, I'm a little less concerned about it. I think the period in which to become um, uh, effective in innovation takes longer than maybe people would like it to. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I wonder if I could also you know, exercise my prerogative here and jump in to ask the two of you a question. Mark, you mentioned the, the significance of the negative list that describes the set of actions that they're not going to allow in the Shanghai Free Trade Zone, whereas previously this was not an instrument that had been used. Um, do you see that you know, in line with how the financial sector generally also comes with freer flows of information and other intangibles? that this might be really a thin end of the wedge towards greater political reform at ground level, something that the Chinese state might well uh, not be able to control as much anymore. I, th I think to a degree, I think as, uh, as Stephen says, politics still uh, dominates economics. Uh, I think the, this is an experiment, it's a policy reform, it's not this is not about tax incentives as has been previously. This is a serious policy initiative. Uh, again, Shanghai, given its importance, its significance, uh, they will ensure, and everything will be done to ensure that it is successful. And I really do believe that this is this is this could be for services what uh, what Shenzhen was for manufacturing. Uh, and that point uh, when Shenzhen and the uh, special economic zones were formed is a lift-off point, a major take-off point. I think this is the, the major take-off point for services. Five, 10, 15 years will tell us whether that's the case. Uh, but I think this is very, very significant. Thank you. Stephen, do you want to add to that? Uh, I, I agree with um, Mark. It sounds like a mutual admiration society, doesn't it? But I, I, do it with, I agree with what he, what he said. I think the, um, uh, the, the issue you raise about political reform is, I mean, I, I said it, when I spoke at the beginning, I said again, I said again and again and again. What we have in the West is the result of our own uh, societies, cultures and history. What China will have in terms of political structures will depend upon China's own history experience and, and what it wants to do. I wouldn't try and tell China 
what to do with their political reform, and I hope China wouldn't try and tell us what to do about political reform. In advance of the 2012 um, uh, Congress, Party Congress, I think four different groups um, had their um, uh, positions and uh, uh, were uh, trying to assume uh, leadership um, politics, traditional um, um, politics in command. Um, I think uh, uh, another group was very strongly in favor of equality. Another group was very strongly in favor of political reform along the Western style. And another group was very strongly in favor of maintaining economic development as the priority. And it's the fourth group who won out. I don't think there will be no political reform, but I think we are looking at a period of 10, 15, 20 years at least of a single-party state uh, where the Communist Party will work very hard, hopefully and effectively, at uh, anti-corruption and making sure that the wishes and ideas of the people are filtered through their system. Thank you. Uh, second round of questions. So we'll begin in the middle this time, uh, the gentleman in the middle. And then I'm going to go there and then there. So a gentleman in the middle here. Uh, uh, Nick Fielding, the editor of China Outlook. Um, over the next uh, 30 years or so, China's going to be facing a number of um, significant demographic issues, not least in terms of a growing elderly population, um, gender disparity, and a falling population. Um, Mr. Tucker, I think you referred to the importance of a, a social security program for China. Um, can China really close the gap between rising expectations of health, education, and welfare and, the growing, and these growing demographic issues? Thank you. Okay, since that section is ready to go, someone from here? In back, the gentleman, sorry, the gentleman in back, and then I'll come back to the people in front. Hi, uh, Bryant from BBP University. Uh, basically, this question is for Mr. Tucker. You mentioned that uh, there is abnormally low interest rate on the Chinese deposits, and this has been a focal criticism of Western media as well. But uh, um, there was a contrary opinion given by Dr. Huang from a Carnegie Endowment yesterday saying that the interest rate in China is actually around 3%. So that is a clear contradiction, and I you know, wish that you can re reconcile that. My second question is, uh, in terms of uh, the lack of insurance, insurance policy for the general population, what, what is your interpretation as, the, as to the cause of this? Why don't the general population, although fear of a major risk in the future, do not take insurance? Thanks. Okay, thank you. Then someone from this side? Anyone from this side? Okay, if not, all right. Um, so it's so up, up here in front, in the second row. Uh, thank you. I'm Zhang Zhu from J.P. Morgan. I have a question on UK-EU relationship and its implication on the UK-China investment and uh, uh, relationship. So as we all know, that uh, UK has always been sort of distant itself from EU, and then there are a lot of problems, um, especially after the euro crisis. There's been Eurosceptic uh, movement and then the potential referendum in 2015 in terms of uh, UK potentially leaving the EU. Um, I think from the emerging markets point of view, including China and Brazil, a lot of the, a lot of the countries they uh, invest and trade with the UK is because its proximity to Europe. Now, with um, potentially UK leaving the EU, 
um, what's your view in terms of um, the Myanmar, UK, and uh, China futures? Okay, thank you. Um, this time, let me begin with Stephen. I'll just take the uh, the third one. Um, the other two much more directed towards Mark and his experience. Um, I, I think the uh, chances of the UK leaving the EU are very small. Uh, it's it's not realistic. It's not uh, uh, business will will shout loud and uh, uh, and say it's a it's a dumb move for us to make as a nation for the reasons that you eloquently outlined. Could be wrong. Could be UKIP will win the next election and we will leave the EU. But I think um, there's another person here who may have a few words to say about it later. But I think um, uh, the chances are quite small, in fact. It's, a, it's an internal political issue for the next election. And it does raise its uh, every, every now and then, but I don't think it's very serious. Okay, Mark? Yeah, let, let me deal in reverse order and say be controversial on the last one. I think, I think the last one is irrelevant. I think the UK is becoming less relevant to China. Uh, uh, and therefore, I think whether it's part of the EU or, EU or not makes very little difference. In terms of the, uh, the demographics, I think the question of uh, whether China becomes rich before it becomes old, I think, is clearly is, is fundamental and key. And I think it's the whole basis of whether China can move out of the, as others, as Hong Kong, as Korea, others in Asia have got out the middle income trap. That is going to be absolutely fundamental. If I, if I mention secu- social security, I meant social safety as opposed, uh, as opposed to social, uh, social security. What is very clear uh, in, the, in the 383 plan, which is really the blueprint for the, for the plenum, it came out before the plenum and, and again is a document uh, well worth reading. It, it sets out eight, uh, eight sectors, which is the eight of the 383, which looks at uh, the, the focus of the government and clearly Healthcare uh, is one of those, uh, and that's where I think the energy, the focus, uh, is going to be put, uh, not through not through the social, uh, the, the sort of the safety net or the security system, but on healthcare and other. Look at the, the eight initiatives under the the three eight three plan. I think that will give you the the sense of uh, of what will be the focus will be. And again, my experience of reading the plans is, just what is written is not enough. Uh, if you read what is written in any of the documents uh, of the plenums, the last 10, uh, 20, 30, 40% has been done. Uh, I think what is important is what implementation mechanisms are in place for these to be done. And I think that needs to be read very carefully in the document. And if you read that carefully, I think the, the information coming, particularly for healthcare, gives you a very clear view of, what, of how, how much a priority this is. In terms, of, in terms of interest rates, uh, this is, a, this is a, a live, uh, I don't know what was said yesterday by, by whom, uh, this is a, a live challenge for us. We have a, uh, we have a big business in, in China. Uh, we are fortunate to be the only foreign company who owns 100% of their business in China, so we do this without a local joint venture partner. Uh, uh, but I think the... Uh, the interest rate liberalisation, what we're seeing uh, uh, again and what's going to happen is a slow process and I think it's there are many different types of rates uh, and how this is liberalised, when this is liberalised is, is very complicated and that's why I say it's going to be a substantial amount of time. In terms of penetration of, of insurance, uh, 
again, it's, it's, it's a fairly new industry. It's an industry itself that's, uh, uh, that's been around since, uh, uh, since 79. So in, in, in a sense, it's, it's, it's a new industry. Foreigners were only allowed in in 1992 when, uh, when we came back into, into China as the first uh, effectively foreign company back into, into that market. The distribution in China, uh, you know, we are competing uh, with, uh, with the, big, the big Chinese players, China Life or Ping An. And China Life and Ping An have between five to 800,000 salespeople. Uh, you know, these are massive sales forces. Uh, they've been focused on selling yields rather than protection, which is a, uh, a different type of business to the one we're in. Uh, but I think if you, if you look at the, any of the levels of penetration of insurance, uh, they are exceptionally low in any global standards. This is increasing and increasing rapidly. Uh, but I think for, uh, to, to, to be able to compete uh, nationwide, uh, again, foreign companies aren't allowed to own more than 50-50. And for us as a Hong Kong company, we're not allowed to go into any new provinces. So effectively, the... There's some limits set on, on that. Whether that changes over time, we, we hope it does. Uh, and I think the, 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 the reforms we've been talking about today indicate that I think this is, this is on a path. But that path could mean 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Thank you, Mark. I'm afraid that we're out of time, so I, cannot, um, I can't let this session continue. I know that there's great enthusiasm and people still want to ask questions. I hope you all stay for the rest of the day, buttonhole our speakers at lunch and so on ask them the questions that you wish to, but also participate in the rest of the day's sessions. It remains for me if I could invite, if I could just invite all of you to join me in thanking our panel as we break up this session. So thank you all very much.